right, all right. Well, this has been a joy, has it not? I'm telling you what, Sam, thank you, brother, for your uh, faithfulness and uh, caring for us, showing so much gospel hospitality. It's been just a treat. I, I got to tell you, uh, it, it is an incredible privilege uh, to be with you uh, today. I, I considered it, in truth, just to be a privilege to attend this event, which I was scheduled to do, uh, but to then have the opportunity uh, to talk about something so weighty and so important as multiplication through church planting in rural contexts, that uh, has humbled me. Uh, and, and so it's a joy uh, to be up here. We'll, we'll jump into that in just a minute. But since the vast majority of you have no idea who I am, you just know that I'm not Noel Heikinen, which is true. Uh, let me tell you a couple of things uh, about myself. I've been married... Um, for nearly 20 years to my wife, uh, Marin, we have uh, nine children uh, ranging from ages uh, 17 to age five. Uh, I will tell you they're all biological and there's no duplicates in there. That's the, those are the two questions we get asked. Are any of them twins and are any of them adopted? We, we, we actually had nine children in uh, less than a 12-year span. And so you can sort of do the math on that in your head and quietly judge me where you sit. But... Um, Probably the reason why they asked me to talk about multiplication, to be honest. Uh, Homeboy's like a walking core team, so let's have him uh, talk about uh, multiplication. But my family is an immeasurable blessing. Uh, we moved back to the States a little over a year ago uh, to replant what had been a dying church in South St. Louis uh, County, and uh, before that, we were living in Mumbai, India, which is, I think, uh, by some standards, the largest uh, the, uh, city on earth. And, and I was running there a, a church planter cohort. And, and prior to that, by God's grace, I was able to plant uh, a church called Red Tree Church in St. Louis back in 2007. Uh, I, I also currently serve, as, as though that's not enough, uh, as a church planting catalyst with uh, with emerging regions for Acts 29. I'm overseeing all of the work for our network uh, in India right now, and, and that's a great privilege as well. So in one form or another, in one context or another, uh, I've been in the world of church planting for the last decade and a half, and because I've done lots of stuff wrong, uh, we have an opportunity this afternoon, Lord willing, to learn from some of my mistakes. I'll share a little bit about some of that as we move along. But uh, in, in truth, as we think about this subject of multiplying or planting churches in rural contexts, uh, honestly, uh, uh, Ben and Tom have made my job incredibly easy because of their topics and their faithfulness to those topics. Because the truth is, is that where we're growing theologically and where we're being transformed by that theology over time, that will naturally produce something in us. That, that, that kind of growth that moves from an intellectual understanding of who God is to a transformation of the heart will necessarily produce things in our leadership. You're likely familiar with the paradigm that people use of the head, the heart, and the hands. If anything, that's maybe been overplayed within leadership training circles, but I think it serves us well in how we think about these things fit together. As our minds are sharpened theologically, so we're seeing God more clearly for who he has revealed himself to be, 
The idea is for those things to permeate and then be applied to the heart such that it shapes us, it changes us, it conforms us to the image of Christ. Well then, that must work itself out through our hands as we exercise outwardly the inward transformation that's happening in our lives. And so as we think about our leadership within the churches that we are called to steward and specifically about the culture or the DNA that's been being cultivated within our churches, that will be shaped by our theology. That will be shaped by the transformation that's happening within us, and that is as it should be. And so my goal this afternoon is to simply build upon what Ben and Tom have laid out so well for us by bringing our minds to Scripture as we look at what is God's design or his blueprint for multiplication, the multiplication of his church. And we'll look at some familiar texts to help us answer that question, hopefully with a fresh set of lenses <clears throat> this afternoon. But before we get there, let me, let me make two foundational statements that I think are important for us to grasp. First, let me say a word about rural. As I've said, I'm replanting right now in a, a, a suburban context. And so I'm not in a rural space right now. In fact, my only experience with rural contexts is working among unreached people groups in rural India, which is very different in a lot of ways. And so I'm not going to pretend to understand all of the unique challenges that you face in each of your contexts. However, I will say this, the biblical mandate of multiplication through church planting, and I hope, to, I, I hope to make that case for you this afternoon. That biblical mandate, in my view, is a universal mandate regardless of your context. Just like rural churches are no less critical and important to the advance of the kingdom and the building up of the church than any other context is. And so we must never devalue a rural context. Just as that is 100% true, it's also true that churches in rural contexts don't get any sort of a pass on what the church is called to biblically. And so my intention is to call all of us together, regardless of context, to a multiplying movement of gospel-centered, culturally engaged, Bible-preaching, disciple-making, church-planting churches that's aimed ultimately at the glory of God. And that's really the second foundational thing that I would say, if any of this is going to happen, anything that we're talking about today, we must understand and embrace this principle. None of this is about us. None of this is about us. And I know that we all agree with that statement, but it's shocking how quickly we either forget it or we ignore it and start operating as though it's not true. We have to understand, brothers and sisters, that everything we are and everything we do is about the glory of God. So we can't have a conversation about church planting and multiplication unless we understand this principle that this truly, truly is God's work. It's always been his work. You've heard it stated today. It's Jesus who said, I will build my church. And so I think that conversation, the fact that 
that this is about God's glory and not our own. This is about God building his kingdom, not me trying to build my little kingdom. That conversation is as important now as it has ever been. Listen, I just an aside. I don't suppose to understand everything that God's doing right now with all of the moving parts happening in our culture. And there are many, from the pandemic to racial tensions to political divisiveness. We could go on and on. Just turn on the news. I don't suppose to understand everything that God's doing. To be sure, he's doing millions of different things at one time. But, but it, it, it occurs to me that... He is doing one thing for sure that I think is unmistakable. He is purifying and he is refocusing his church. I think that we can probably on a base level agree with that. God seems to be dismantling cultural Christianity in our context and returning his church to his intention for the church. And that is something to be embraced and to be celebrated because the great temptation within churches has always been, historically, it's been to become myopic and self-focused. To think about preserving or protecting the thing that we think we've built. That's actually a hallmark of what we've seen in American evangelicalism. It's like the analogy, um, some of you in the room know a, a, a pastor by the name of Steve Treichler. He's a friend of mine in Minneapolis, and he uses this great analogy on the subject. He, he says, too many churches have invested their time trying to build lakes when all along God has called us to build rivers. You see, this is not about, about us damming up and pooling up people and resources in one place. It's about unleashing people and unleashing resources for kingdom expanse far and wide. It's what it's always been about. And so this time is a gift from the Lord and refocusing our churches because ultimately we need churches that are humble. We need churches that are humble. We need churches that are dependent upon the power of God and how he's leading us by his spirit. We need churches that are genuinely awe-inspired and grateful for the work of God in their midst. I mean, that's my desire for the church that I'm replanting right now. We've been praying as a body that God would do whatever it takes to cultivate those things, humility and dependence and gratitude in us, that, that, that they would be there and that they'd permeate the heart of every person in the church and that that ultimately would combine to form a God-glorifying culture of multiplication where we are learning progressively more and more to die to ourselves and live more and more abandoned for the building up of the church. And that's essentially my call to us this afternoon. And so let's go to scripture to look at this. I'd like to do a quick survey so I'm going to move quickly through several texts with which you're familiar, so don't worry about this. Uh, and I want to just do a quick survey of several texts in the early New Testament, and that'll then set a foundation, I think, for us to look at one passage a little bit more deeply. And listen, I, I can't think of a better place for us to start than with Jesus' marching orders for the church in Matthew chapter 28. This is, of course, the Great Commission. 
Now you're aware of the setting of Matthew 28. Jesus has raised from the dead. The Marys witness the empty tomb. Jesus sends for his disciples to meet him in Galilee. And that's what they do. The 11 remaining disciples meet Jesus at the appointed place on the mountain. And it's interesting because Matthew says that when they saw Jesus, although they worshipped him, some had doubt. It says they had questions in their heart. And so with everything that's transpired up to this point, they were still having trouble seeing the way forward for this kingdom that Jesus had ushered in. And then Jesus looks at them and says the words that we all know well, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, Again, we know those words. You didn't even need to turn there in your Bibles. You've all studied and quoted and preached that passage. But do we really understand what Jesus is saying within the context of God's design for his church? I mean, we clearly understand that passage as a mandate to make disciples, to evangelize, to proclaim the gospel. That's unmistakable. And listen, by the way, it's not just a charge to these 11 men. No, Jesus said to, to teach these new disciples to be obedient to everything that he commanded, which builds into this mandate a never-ending cycle of disciple-making and gospel proclamation this side of glory. So we understand that, but here's the point for us. Now get this. This mandate entails much more than the charge to evangelize and proclaim the gospel. This is also a command to baptize new believers into something. Namely, a body of believers, a fellowship, and then to see them raised up and taught over time in the context of that same body. So this isn't just Jesus instructing his followers to go into an area, proclaim the gospel, get a bunch of people to agree with it, and then bounce. No, this is a mandate to go and to establish, to plant churches, which, as we will see, is exactly how the disciples translated these marching orders with some help. Now, fast forward to the end of Luke and to the beginning of Acts, very parallel Luke ends with a similar charge from Jesus. He says, this gospel is to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth from Jerusalem. And here's where the help comes in. Jesus says, but don't you dare move without the Holy Spirit. He's furthering the point that this really isn't about us. This is about God. Jesus says, man, this is infinitely beyond you you need help and you wait until the helper comes it's almost exactly what's recorded in acts chapter 1 verse 8 but you will receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the end of the earth now listen i'm not telling you anything new i'm just pointing this afternoon to some things that are true Jesus drops the blueprints on his followers and then he beams up, he ascends to heaven. And what happens next? Pentecost. The Holy Spirit does come in power. 
You have Peter's sermon that's anointed by the Holy Spirit. You have thousands upon thousands of hearers whose hearing is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Everyone's hearing this in their own language. And you then have people's responses which were also anointed by the Holy Spirit. It says that 3,000 people were cut to the heart and repented. By the way, those, those verses detailing Pentecost are a great, succinct reminder of the fact that that was the Spirit's work then, and that's exactly how the Spirit works today. Listen, when the word of God is being proclaimed, it's the spirit who's anointing that word which has authority. And when people are responding to the word, it's the spirit who's orchestrating and giving them ears to hear and then cutting them to the heart in repentance. It's exactly what God does today. And so the church is formed. And listen, this church is amazing. Right? You, you can read in chapters 2 through 5, they shared their lives together. They, they shared in the apostles' teaching. They lived this stuff out. They ate together, prayed together, worshiped together. They were selling all their stuff and meeting needs within the body. It says that awe came upon every soul. It's a ridiculously beautiful church context that God himself clearly and undeniably planted. But here's that. Here's the thing. Does that sound like the kind of church that people want to leave? Does that sound like the church that you would want to leave? No, you got to figure that early church in Jerusalem was like, uh, yeah, about that Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth stuff. Are we like, are we still doing that? Because I really, really like this. Right? Yeah, I wonder how much of the, uh, man, the preaching's great. The music's great. You had a great children's ministry program. This is where all my friends are. I wonder how much of that was going on in the first church. I, I think it was Ed Stetzer who said, he, he's good at these pithy little comments that you remember, but I think Ed said, it's difficult to get people to leave good churches to be a part of the Great Commission. You see that? It's difficult to get people to leave good churches to be a part of the Great Commission because we're conditioned to find and stay in good churches. Well, I think the early church is probably that quote on steroids. It feels to me that when we read Acts 2 through 5, there existed at least the tendency for the church to become myopic or comfortable or complacent or content, however you want to put it. But listen, folks, God's mission is God's mission, and his mission is gloriously unstoppable. You hear that? It's gloriously unstoppable. Some freshly minted lazy Christians aren't going to get in the way of what God's purpose to do to build his church. So what happens? He sends the storm, doesn't he? Yeah, beginning with the arrest of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and then his execution, we see the ravaging of the church in Jerusalem led by Saul. Got to love God's sense of humor. Yeah, the same guy that he would use to literally plant the hell out of the areas around the Mediterranean. And by the way, I'm not trying to be flippant or disrespectful. When we're planting the gospel and when we're expanding the church and when light is going and pushing back the darkness, that's what's happening. We're planting the hell out of areas. And Paul did that around the Mediterranean. But before that, he led a brutal campaign against the church that pushed it out of Jerusalem. What's the first thing that we read after that persecution starts? Philip proclaiming Christ where? In Samaria. And it spread. 
it spread and it spread. Every day, ordinary followers of Jesus inflamed with the gospel and indwelt with the Holy Spirit, taking the gospel to every city and village and town and farm around them. Not just proclaiming, but establishing and planting churches. Now, one of those churches was planted in a place called Antioch. And this is how the planting of Antioch is described in Acts chapter 11. I'll read it for you. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, so that's non-Jews, that's Gentiles, spoke to them also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. That's verses 19 through 21. Now, this is where I want to sit for a while, Because there's something beautiful happening in the church in Antioch. We get a further description of that in chapter 13. You can navigate there in your Bibles if you'd like. And I believe that this can really help us in how we think about the churches that we are stewarding. There are some things here in Acts chapter 13 that can lead us into a larger vision for the church in an eagerness to be a part of something bigger than just our individual churches. Let me read this text. It's the first three verses of chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, that's all. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. That's it. So that's all we have. Just three verses, but three very full verses from which I think we can derive a few important principles. I'll give them to you and we'll move quickly. Here's the first one. The church in Antioch was focused on the right things. They were focused on the right things. Now notice how the text says, it just gives us a little bit of information. It says that they were worshiping the Lord and they were fasting, but that they were doing all of this with an attitude of prayer. Now, if you were to go back to chapter 11 and read more fully where we just were, you'd see that there was such a movement of the gospel happening in Antioch that word actually got back to Jerusalem, which caused them to send Barnabas to go and check things out. Barnabas gets there and his mind is blown. He's astounded. He's so amazed that what's happening and the grace of the Lord in that place that he hurries on to Tarshish uh, where he grabs Saul and brings him back to Antioch and they stayed there for a year. So when you take all of that into account, you come to the conclusion that this church was treasuring Christ. They were treasuring Christ. I mean, we understand that 
rightly oriented prayer and the discipline of fasting and this kind of worship really serves to remind us that Jesus is better. These are things that help root us in the gospel and keep us focused on the person and the work of Jesus Christ as the main thing. I just just read a couple of days ago that J.I. Packer's final encouragement to the church was simply four words. I'm sure you read this. It was all over the Twitterverse. He challenged the church to glorify Christ every way. Four words. Glorify Christ every way. That's a good summary of what we're talking about here. We must be focused on the right things. We must be majoring on the majors. And listen, that's as important now as it has ever been. Just as relevant today are Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. Paul exhorts Timothy to keep a close watch on himself and his doctrine. Persist in this, Paul says, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. And his meaning in this is clear. As pastors, as leaders within churches, we must pay close attention to our heart, Ben, and our doctrine, Tom, right? Which is essentially, that's what we've been talking about today. Paul's telling Timothy the exact same thing that these two men faithfully exhorted you and I in today. That we as pastors and leaders must have environments where we're able to experience the rhythms of gospel renewal in our own hearts. That we have people around us that have access to us and the ability to speak in and call out. It means that we are decreasing and Jesus is increasing. Think John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. And then how we lead the church will flow from that. Always flow from that. The hope is that we're able to lead the church to stay more and more focused on the beauty and the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And then on the multiplication of the church for the advance of the kingdom. But it starts with us remaining laser focused on the right things. Because listen, if we're not focused on the right things, then multiplication is actually counterproductive. It's counterproductive. The goal is not to reproduce disease and dysfunction, but health. Church in Antioch was praying and fasting. They were treasuring Christ above all else, and that's our call as well. Now, here's the thing. Where that's happening, it will produce a myriad of things within us, not the least of which is humility, and that's what we need. We need the Lord to humble us, to bring us low. And the, listen, the reason that humility is so important is because we, we will not get to what comes next if there's not a growing humility in us. We won't get to this second principle without learning to die to ourselves. Quick sidebar, that dynamic is something that we must come to understand on repeat in our hearts. That in God's economy, death is always the engine of life. You hear that? In God's economy, death is always the engine of life. That's how he designed this whole thing to work. Jesus was pretty explicit in John chapter 12, verses 24 through 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Listen, that was true of Jesus. As he would die laying down his life for the redemption and the ransom of his people. This is true also though for individual believers. That as we learn to progressively die to ourselves, we're able to experience the fruit of this new life. But this principle is also true in our churches. We must die corporately and be humbled so that we can experience the fruit of God's work in greater ways. We learn and relearn and relearn the rhythms of what it looks like to collapse on Christ. We stay focused on the right things, which produces a growing humility in us. And then, and then we're able to experience the second principle that we see in this church in Antioch. And here it is, the church in Antioch sent out their best. Listen, they sent out their best. It's a little jaw-dropping that this church had Saul, Barnabas, and we know because they'd brought him with them in traveling from Jerusalem that they had John Mark. It's like the A-team, good grief. That's in addition, I'm sure, to very capable leaders, other leaders within the church. You want to talk about capacity? You want to talk about an all-star team? You have to imagine that it would have been really tempting for them to try to keep all of that leadership within the church and not let them go. But that's not what they did. It's not what they did. They sent out Barnabas and Saul with joy. Now, I am suggesting unapologetically, I'm not going to apologize for this, that must be our posture as well. I'm not, I'm not going to say sorry, because it must be our posture as well, regardless of context. We must be in a position where we're not just willing, I think some of us are willing, but we're not just willing, but we are actively working to send out our best. Not begrudgingly, not hesitantly, not with reservation, but with absolute joy. Real talk for a second. That's hard. That's really hard, if we're going to be honest. In fact, I would say that it's impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit to grow us in humility. Because where we're conditioned... We, like, all of us are conditioned to think about leadership and church growth the exact opposite way. We're trained to build lakes. You're supposed to find and or develop the right people and then you do whatever it takes to hang on to them. Before I became a church planter, I was on staff at a couple of really big churches. And I can tell you that this is the mentality that was pervasive and so when I first planted back in 2007, that mentality bled over into how I thought about church planting. And God had to break that in me over the first few years. Just as he ravaged the church in Jerusalem, he ravaged this concept in my heart that it's my job to hold on to and protect the things that I think that I've built. He gave me a vision for developing people in order to send them out. Now, that's not to say that everyone is going to be sent out, but what that does is when we create this DNA of sending in our churches, it doesn't just create an 
an outward propulsion of the gospel and kingdom work. It does do that, but it also creates a deeper gospel culture within our churches. And I'll tell you why that is. Because when you send out your best, it produces a greater dependence upon God. You start sending out your best, you're going to learn what it means to be more and more dependent upon God. You think about it from this angle. We are freed up to be generous with our best because the only thing we actually need is Christ. Like, like he's all that we actually need. And I know that's an easy thing to say and a really difficult thing to live out, but it's absolutely true. He is all we have. He is all we need. I'll, I'll, I'll say it like this. And this is dirty, but I'm going to say it anyway. Jesus is the only one who's irreplaceable in our churches. Can I say that? He's the only one who's irreplaceable in our churches. I'm replaceable. In fact, listen, because we created this DNA, not perfectly, but we created over time, I got to experience the joy of being sent out from the church that I planted after 10 years. And it's because we labored for this. I was replaceable. When we believe that Jesus is all, he's all we have, he's all we need, and we live like that's actually true. We don't just sing songs about it. We live like it's true then we see sending people out as a joy at, and as an opportunity for ongoing discipleship and leadership development. I just sent this guy out and it creates a void. I've got to fill that space. We've got to continue the work of discipling and raising up the next generation of leaders. So a couple of evaluative questions for you to think about. Maybe you can write these down and reflect on them later. Do you tend to hoard what God has provided for you, or do you find it easy to give those things away? That's a good question. You tend to hoard those resources, or do you tend towards giving those things away? How about this one? How has your definition of success in ministry, how has that shaped your willingness to raise up, equip, and then send people out? How does that movement play into how you define success in ministry. I really believe that our idea of success in ministry should be measured much more by our river building than by our ability to build lakes. It should be aimed at texts like Matthew 28, 19 through 20. It should be aimed at texts like Revelation 7, 9 through 12. We get this beautiful picture of this multitude gathered before the throne from every ethne, all worshiping, unfettered by sin, with one voice, our king. That's the goal. Not me building this little thing that looks awesome or makes me feel good. What would it look like to shift from some of the metrics in our churches towards sending people out to start new works and take the gospel to new places what would it look like to shift some of our resources to make that a priority, which is admittedly more challenging in a rural context? But can I just tell you that when you're in a rural context, I think that just means that greater creativity needs to be applied to this conversation. Greater creativity. It will take collaboration with churches in surrounding areas. Who's around you? Who's near you? Who can help you in this? How can you be partnered with other churches in this? It will likely not just be about planting, but as you've heard Sam and others say so many times today, about replanting and revitalization efforts. 
Whatever it looks like, it is the work to which we are called. So the church in Antioch was focused on the right things. They were sending out their best. And then the final principle I would highlight before we close our time is that they celebrated the work of God and the advance of the gospel. They partied over this stuff. They celebrated. Man, celebrate. Learning to celebrate the right things is such a joy in the church. And I believe they did it. Now, we don't have a lot of details in this text, so I'm admittedly stretching a bit here. But when you add everything up, you get the very real sense that this was, in fact, celebratory for them. It says they laid their hands on these men. They sent them off. As we learn to align our church more with God's blueprint for multiplication through church planting, we must learn to celebrate sending. We must. Because, with, listen, without it, our people are naturally going to translate someone going as a loss. They're naturally going to translate that as a loss, but it's not a loss. Sending is a gain when you look at the kingdom perspective. And we create that culture by celebrating sending. Now, this is an area where I really experienced some tension in my heart and failed miserably at early on in the church plant that I was leading years ago. I, I would get super frustrated. You may resonate with me on this. I'd get super frustrated because of how much my people were so focused on themselves. Their work, their family, their little world, it's, it's consumerism in people's lives that we see constantly pulling against things like covenantalism, living with other people. It's frustrating. And then it occurred to me that I would preach the mission of God in their lives, the fact that God has called them to take the gospel where they work, live, and play, but we weren't really modeling that for them as a church. So I'd say it, but we're not doing it corporately. And God convicted me that I was trying to convince people to die to themselves so they could be sent as missionaries into the unredeemed spaces around them. But I wasn't leading the church that way in how we were developing and then sending out leaders. That's hypocrisy. And in that moment, God seared this lesson on my heart. And, and it changed the culture of that church and my pursuits ever since. I'll, I'll phrase it like this. I don't want to ever create a situation where I'm quote-unquote successful in something that God hasn't even called me to. Like that's, that's a scary place to be. I don't want to be successful in something that God hasn't even called me to. Right? I was on a trajectory to be a really good lake builder, and the Lord convicted me that I'm actually called to be in the river business. So I speak out of brokenness and failure in this. I'm about out of time. I want to honor that this afternoon. But let me close with just a word of encouragement for you. And I really genuinely mean this. I'm not just saying this because we're at the Rural Summit. As we travel deeper and deeper into this post-Christian, ever-changing culture, whatever you want to call it. Where, where, where cultural Christianity is dying and true Christianity is being pushed to the margins of culture. Now that's a win. But as we learn to navigate those waters, the way forward, I'm convinced, on church planting is going to take increasing creativity across the board. 
Resources will become more scarce. At some point, the American church landscape will likely look like much of the rest of the world looks now. And here's what that means. And I mean this. The creativity that your churches will need to employ to be a part of this mission of multiplication now. You will be pioneering for the rest of the American church landscape how we must think about multiplication in the days ahead. You're going to be the forerunners in thinking creatively about what this looks like. What an amazing opportunity you have. I mean it. I know you might say, I got 40 people and can't get anybody to even set up chairs on Sunday. How am I going to send somebody out? I know, but I mean this. This work of learning to train up and send out your best and work collaboratively with other churches on limited resources, depending upon the Holy Spirit, following God with this gospel courage that it takes to plant churches. The work that you're going to do now in that will pave the way for the rest of us as we're figuring out how to do this with limited resources. What an opportunity you have. Now, we don't have time to get into a lot of application. I'm sure you texted hundreds of questions to a number that will never answer back, but. <laughs> Sam's going to be like for days. Listen, this is why conversations about networks and denominations and these relationships that you've been able to form today, some of you even from out of state, Meet somebody, talk to somebody. Let's pursue answers where there's creativity needed together so that we can be a part of the larger work that God is doing, knowing that his promise is to fill the earth with his glory like the waters cover the sea. It's going to happen. And we get to be a part of it. And what a pleasure it is. What a privilege it is. Would you pray with me? Father, you are immeasurably good to us. Immeasurably good. There are no words. Any of them would fall short for how kind you are to us. This day is a testimony to your kindness. That you would allow us to come into a place and be so encouraged by your spirit from your word. I pray that you would set our hearts on fire this morning. We know that that's a work of your spirit. And so, God, would, would we be passionate to chase after your design, your plan, your purpose for your church? May that, may that invade the spaces of our mind theologically. May it transform our heart in a way that absolutely wrecks us and conforms us to the image of your son. And then, God, then would you give us the courage to send us out and put our hands to the plow? We want to be a part of this, God. I pray against those things in our heart that lean towards comfort and complacency and contentment. God, would you give us courage to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. Father, I pray for the small 
rural spaces that are represented in this room. I pray for the cities that are represented in this room, the suburban areas, and we pray that you would invade, push back darkness with the light of the gospel. God, would you inflame the hearts of your people with a passion and a zeal for worship to the point where they won't shut up about you and they won't stop at loving people radically. God, let it be so for your glory as you build your church. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.